through deepening faith and repentance. We are in the 10th chapter of Mark this morning, so if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. If not, there's a black Bible in the pew in front of you, and if not that, you should have an app on your phone. In the religion of Islam, I didn't expect, I, don't, I, I bet you didn't expect that we would be talking about Islam this morning. In the religion of Islam, there is something called the doctrine of abrogation. This doctrine of abrogation says that whatever comes later in the Quran, that is, whatever was spoken by Muhammad or one of his prophets later in the Quran, abrogates or replaces and improves that which was said earlier in the Quran. So, for example, in an early part of the Quran, you can read the words, wine has some profit. But later in that same Quran, you will read this, quote, wine is an abomination, Satan's handiwork, end quote. Now, that's a pretty apparent contradiction. But the way that Muslim scholars work through that contradiction is through the doctrine of abrogation. They would say, you know, there was one thing earlier, but God came along and improved it through his prophet later. Now, what we think about drinking wine is somewhat inconsequential. But what we think about violence is not. In the religion of Islam, there is something called jihad. Jihad is holy war. It involves violence to the enemies of Islam, primarily other people of the book, like Jews and Christians. And it also involves taqiyya, which is deception in order to accomplish that violence. It's not sinful to lie if you're trying to execute jihad on one of God's enemies. Many liberal Muslim scholars see the commands to violence in the early parts of the Quran as abrogated by some other passages later in the Quran. But other conservative Muslim scholars see commands later in the Quran towards violence as abrogations of earlier commands for peace. So in the early, Quran, in the early parts of the Quran, you see that Muhammad made a peace agreement with Jews and with Christians. As long as they pay their taxes, we will not cut their noses off and sell them as slaves. Later in Surah 9.5, you read this. Slay them wherever you find them. These Muslim scholars would say that this command to violence is an abrogation against the earlier command to peace. It seems like both sides want the doctrine of abrogation to work in their favor. Now, whether we realize it or not, many Christians kind of have a doctrine of abrogation built into the way that they understand the Bible, the way that they understand how God works through the Old and the New Covenants. They would say, earlier in the Bible, God did this and said that, but later in the Bible, Jesus came and he did this and he did that. You know, Old Testament God, mean, ferocious, full of wrath. New Testament God, Jesus, all he wants to do is play with children and pet lambs all day. We saw last week in Jesus' sermon on hell, that is absolutely not the case. In today's text, 
question is, does Jesus come along and abrogate the teachings of Moses? That is, does Moses teach one thing about divorce and marriage earlier in the Bible, only to have Jesus come along later in the Bible and say something that replaces it and improves it? Obviously, I don't think that that's the case, but we'll look at this text and study it together. Let's read Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. We're talking about marriage this morning. Now, it might be tempting to say that we're talking about divorce. But we're not. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees that confront Jesus in today's text, they want to talk about divorce. But Jesus doesn't let them. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But Jesus takes this sly question and intended to deceive and he flips it on his head. And he says, well, we're actually not going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about marriage. If you understand good, God's good intention and design for marriage, then that will kind of take care of any questions that you have about divorce. So if Jesus, you know, takes something that's about divorce and turns it into marriage, I think it's probably safe that we treat the text in the same way. And here again, we have a controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are acting like their father, Satan, and they are communicating like their father, Satan. They're not communicating in a way that is desirous of revealing truth, right? They're acting like Satan in the garden. They're coming up and asking questions, but those questions are not genuine questions. You know, Satan asks Eve in the garden, well, did God really say? Satan didn't want to know if God really said. What he wanted to do was to deceive Adam and Eve. In the same way, the Pharisees here today, they don't actually want to know what Jesus thinks about this question of divorce, what they're trying to do is get him caught up in a controversy. At best, they're trying to make him look bad. At worst, they are trying to get Jesus killed. You saw earlier in the book of Mark that the Pharisees, almost after one of their very first controversies, said, we need to kill this guy. But even in those times, it's not quite easy to just kill someone, to have him whacked. So... They might be trying to kill him here. You remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is where Herod lives. If you remember from earlier in my sermons in the book of Mark, Herod 
was the Gentile ruler. And he was famous for some of, a, some of his immorality, namely divorcing his wife and then marrying another woman, which he also unlawfully took from another man. John the Baptist preached against this sin, and he was killed for it. This is fresh in the mind of the Pharisees. The greatest prophet of that generation put to death for saying a word negative against divorce and the ruler who had just been divorced. Maybe the Pharisees are thinking, we can ask him this question and get him bogged down in this controversy that will eventually get back to the ears of Herod, and Herod will kill him, and we won't even have to worry about it. You know, two birds, one stone kind of a thing. Or maybe they're just trying to get Jesus bogged down in some local Jewish theological controversy. Maybe he can get people on either side of the aisle on this debate to stand against him and kind of sideline and sidetrack his ministry. There were two basic schools of thought in Jesus' day on the matter of divorce. There was a conservative and a liberal. The liberal side said, hey, you can divorce a woman for any reason. You know, she looks at you the wrong way, divorce. Didn't cook the, you know, the fig pie the way it was supposed to be made, divorce. The other side said it's only lawful to divorce your wife if she commits adultery. And they pulled that from Moses' teaching. The Pharisees are trying to put Jesus in a very difficult position here. They're saying, which school of thought do you align with? Whose side are you on? Now, in this position, I don't think we're designed, we're in, we should try to like find a centrist position. You know, It's not this side or that side, it's the middle. No, I think there is a right side here. But just like all controversies, when you pick the right side, you're going to have people on the other side of the aisle throwing rocks at you. And that's what they're expecting to have happen to Jesus here. This is similar to a Bible-believing pastor being interviewed on a talk show, right? The host talks about the pastor's book or his really popular church or some event that's going on for a little while, and as of late, the questions quickly turn to marriage. What do you think about gay marriage? You don't honestly believe that everyone who's not a Christian is going to hell, do you? See, this is the... This is the way that the Pharisees are acting. In the same way that the interview isn't genuinely pursuing truth on the part of the interviewee, the Pharisees are not genuinely pursuing truth from Jesus. They don't really want to know his opinion. This is gotcha journalism, first century Palestine edition. But Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. You've got to wake up pretty early in the morning to outsmart God the Son. He responds to their question with a question. The Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And just so you know, I'm taking this to mean, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? If you read the same account in the Gospel of Matthew, you find those words. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? I don't think that Mark includes that detail here because Mark just doesn't include a whole lot of details. You know, he's, he's very much on one path, one direction, and he doesn't include a lot of the dialogue. But I assume that that's what's taking place here. Jesus responds in verse 3 by asking them this question. Well, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? Now, he is actually giving them an answer to their question. He's saying, if you want to know the answer, all you have to do is read the Scripture. The Scripture is pulling directly from Deuteronomy 24, where Moses says that a man is permitted to divorce his wife and vice versa on grounds of infidelity. 
Now, the way that Jesus answers is genius, and you may not appreciate it because you're not involved in like the first century world of theological drama, but in that time, everyone kind of had their rabbi, you know, the guy that they listened to. You know, what do you think about a man having the right to divorce his wife? Well, my rabbi says, you know, that he can divorce her for any reason. Well, the guy says, well, my rabbi says that no, actually you can't. You can only divorce her for grounds of infidelity. And the other guy will say, well, my rabbi was trained by rabbi so-and-so who was the descendant of rabbi so-and-so. Ergo, your argument is invalid. The same thing still happens today, of course. I cannot tell you how many times I've had a conversation with someone about something in the Bible, and they will just kind of throw out whatever their favorite pastor or author or teacher says on the subject, as if that is the definitive answer, you know. And that's on both sides of the argument. Even when I agree with people on what they say when they're arguing, it makes me shudder and cringe when they're trying to make an argument, and they quote a reformer rather than quoting the Bible that the reformers were reading to make their arguments, It's easier for us in so many ways to just argue other people's interpretations of the scripture. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, I don't care what Rabbi so-and-so says. What did Moses say? What did God say through Moses in the scripture? I've probably tried to change people's minds about something that they see in the Bible hundreds of times over. Hundreds of times over. You say something about God or about man or about grace and salvation or gifts or anything, and if it's not right because this is just kind of how I'm built, I'll I'll say, actually, that's not quite right. I've done it with people in this room. And anybody who knows me can tell you that I always start with the Bible. Not because I'm super special and I'm so awesome. I start with the Bible because I'm so dumb and I don't really have any answers to give. But God's word is sufficient. God's word has the answers. I may misread a church father or, you know, falsely trust in some author, but if I see it in the scripture, I can know it to be true. I may give books later and ask people to read articles and watch videos, but I always start with the Bible. Brothers and sisters, that is my challenge to you. Always stand on God's word, even if it means that you have to go against your pastor, your theological tradition, your denomination, your family, whatever it may be. The Pharisees here expect Jesus to get caught up in a debate about rabbinical interpretation. But Jesus bypasses all of that by pointing to the scriptures. And the Pharisees are pulling from Deuteronomy 24, as I said. We're not going to spend any time there this morning because Jesus gives us his interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Jesus tells us how we should understand that. For now, it should suffice to say that speaking through Moses... God allowed divorce on one ground for one reason only, adultery. That is how God worked in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus wants us to understand that Moses' command regarding marriage and divorce is not the last word on the matter. Look at verse 5 in today's text. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus says that God, through Moses, allowed the Israelites to get divorces. But even that was only because of their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart, of course, just speaks of the thoroughly 
sin-saturated nature of their hearts. It is full of sin and completely and totally in rebellion against God. God's word, God's truth, God's law, God's love cannot penetrate the hard-heartedness of man. You start to see this as soon as the biblical story unfolds. God creates Adam and Eve. They sin. They get cast out of the garden. They have two sons. One of their two sons kills the other one. The one that lives has another son, and he kind of writes a song where he brags about the fact that he's more evil and does more damage than you know his ancestor. Things get so bad that the Lord destroys the earth. And before he does that, he says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought of every intention of all of the thoughts of his heart was only and always continuously evil. We're basically good people. Well, that's not what God's word says. Sin entered into this world and corrupted the hearts of mankind. And as a result of that, it corrupted the institutions that God gave man in order to flourish. As God created the world, he says, man, take your wife, be fruitful, multiply, flourish, and subdue the earth and all the animals. This is yours. I'm giving it to you to enjoy. But in our sin, we take the good gifts of God and we abuse them. So husbands, rather than entering into their permanent, faithful, covenant relationships with their wives, end up cheating on them, taking another wife, committing covenant unfaithfulness breaking their promises. And so God, in His law, as a result of man's sinful inclination to break the marriage covenant, kindly allows them the ability to acknowledge the fact that unfaithfulness has taken place. That is what divorce is. Now I want to make sure you heard me right. For those of you guys who are kind of tuning out a little bit, tune back in. Lock in, focus, thinking caps. If you walk away from this sermon thinking that God allowed a certain sin because of hardness of heart, because he knew that people would do it anyways, you will have totally misunderstood this sermon. This is not like some cool parent who's like, well, I don't want you smoking weed, but I know you're going to do it anyway, so at least I'll let you smoke weed in the house so that I know that you're safe. That's not what God is doing here. God would never do that. In this scenario, divorce is not the sin. Divorce is not the sin. The divorce is the legal and public recognition that the sin of covenant unfaithfulness has already taken place. The divorce is not breaking the marriage covenant. The divorce is a public recognition that through infidelity, the marriage covenant has already been broken. So when a man cheats on his wife or vice versa, the marriage covenant is broken. And the divorce that follows the adultery is not the sin. It is merely the recognition of the sin. So, God is not granting the sin of divorce. God is granting divorce to those who have already sinned or been sinned against primarily by having the covenant vows broken by infidelity. Now, if you misunderstand this, 
you will walk away from the sermon thinking that God grants sin because he thinks it's going to happen anyways, and what are you going to do? Like the government issuing needles to drug addicts. They're going to use them anyways. We might as well give them out. But if you rightly understand this, you see that God is graciously giving fallen humans a way to deal with the sin that is taking place amongst them. What I'm saying is that in one sense, under the Old Covenant, divorce was a grace from God, when rightly understood. Now, we're going to come back around to this. That may have jogged some questions in your mind, and I tend to answer them before the sermon is over. But one of the questions that you may be thinking about right now, people usually do when they start thinking about this sort of thing, is polygamy. Well, since you have such a high view of marriage and God and the Bible and, you know, one man, one woman, all that stuff, what about polygamy? Didn't God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Much of the Old Testament is just descriptive. It doesn't say that God was in favor of it or that he allowed it. It just describes the fact that it took place. You also see in the Old Testament that any time there's a relationship that involves polygamy, it always, always, always ends in misery and despair. Almost as if it wasn't designed to work that way. It's like whenever a friend tells me about something weird going on in the life of their church that I told them is not biblical and they can't understand why it's not working. I say, well, maybe it wasn't designed to work that way. A wise theologian once told me that everything in our Bibles can be traced back to Genesis. And here we see Jesus himself taking us back to Genesis. That's what we see in verse 6. And verse 6 says, but from the beginning of creation, and then he quotes Genesis. And when he says the beginning of creation, everyone's mind automatically goes back to the book of Genesis. Here we see Jesus himself taking us back to Genesis in order to figure out the answer to a tricky theological question, divorce and remarriage. What should we think about that? Well, we can go to Moses, and we can also go back before Moses. If you have questions and you don't understand what was happening with Moses, I'll take you back before Moses. You can see here that he's merely quoting those words verbatim from Genesis 2 that we read this morning. Initially, Jesus engages the Pharisees by trying to get them to quote Scripture. He's like, you're asking me this question, but you know the answer. Come on, what's the answer? Tell me. You've, you grew up memorizing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You know the answer to this. Go ahead and tell me Scripture. Go ahead. But now it's Jesus' turn to quote Scripture. And he uses it to help explain the way the rest of Scripture should be understood. And here we see a very important key to reading and understanding our Bibles, brothers and sisters. We should always let Scripture interpret Scripture. If there's something unclear about what we read in the book of Deuteronomy about marriage and remarriage and divorce, we should look for something that's more clear from Scripture to help us understand that. If there's something unclear to you about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, you should look for something that's really clear in the text to help you understand that. If there's something uncertain about justification by faith and faith alone, you should look for something that is more certain to help you make sense of it. Here Jesus says, well, if you really want to understand what's going on with Moses and this whole hardness of heart thing, what you really need to do is look back at the very beginning when God designed marriage in the first place. And here we see that Jesus understands Genesis to be teaching that marriage is a permanent covenant relationship between one man 
and one woman. That is God's design for marriage. That is Jesus' definition for marriage. That is the standard of marriage by which we can judge all perversions of marriage. A permanent covenant relationship between one man and one woman. And this union is so close that the two separate people become one person in a very real way. Look at verse 8. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then in verse 9, we see that Jesus doesn't just understand this act to be something that we do or that the government does, but rather that something God himself does. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what does rabbi so-and-so think about divorce and remarriage? What does this denomination's figurehead think about remarriage? Well, all of that doesn't really matter. Even what Moses says is somewhat relativized by Jesus. Jesus says, I'm telling you what God's original good design for marriage was. So, it is to Genesis and Jesus' understanding of Genesis that we should look when we want to understand questions about marriage. So, let's just run a couple scenarios. A man comes into the church and says, I want to marry two women. Can I do that? The answer is no. Why? Because that is not a permanent covenant between one man and one woman. A lady in the UK says she really, really, (coughs) really loves her cat and wants to marry it. Should she be allowed to do so? Well, that is not a permanent covenant relationship between one man and one woman. A woman wants to marry another woman. Same thing. The answer is no. A woman wants to marry two men. The answer is no. Brothers and sisters, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But you don't have to be a prophet to perceive the way that the world is pressing in on the church about issues of marriage. That's compounded by the fact that we have made it all the worse in our churches by tolerating unbiblical divorces and treating marriage lightly. Nevertheless, the world is pressing in on us. Even the cool hip pastors that had the mega churches with the lights and the smoke and the exact opposite of what we have here, you know, with the pastors who were, you know, so handsome they could be models and wearing skinny jeans and designer glasses. Again, the exact opposite of what we have here. They used to get a pass on this. They're not getting a pass anymore. Carl Lentz, pastor of Hillsong, a wolf if there ever was one, cool, accepted by the world, went up be interviewed on secular media. They were talking about his book. They were talking about his church. We hear Justin Bieber is a member of your church. We hear Kanye West is a member of your church. How cool is that? Uh, But aren't you guys against gay marriage? Even Carl Lentz isn't getting a pass anymore. The church has lost the war on marriage in America as it stands now. Legally, we have lost the war, and by popular vote, 61% of Americans are in support of gay marriage. It has been legalized in the highest courts in our land, and it seems like there are new threats to God's good design for marriage every single day. The threats come within the church, and the threats come from outside of the church. The time is coming where blood-bought believers in America 
who thought that they were going to get a pass on answering this hard question, what do you think marriage is, will have to decide. Are you going to agree with the world, or are you going to agree with Jesus and his understanding of marriage in Genesis? And the cost will be high. Christian education institutions will lose funding over this. Faith-based charities will have to close down because their hiring policies will be deemed hate speech, unlawful. Churches will, in all likelihood, have to prepare to lose tax-exempt status if they do not conform to the world's understanding of marriage. Even churches now are examining their documents, trying to find legal ways to protect themselves from lawsuits because gay people are coming to the church to be married and the church is standing on what it believes marriage to be in the Scripture and they are being threatened with lawsuits, all kinds of litigious actions. And it's especially difficult because churches have been inconsistent. They say they stand on God's word when it comes to marriage, but they've allowed divorces to take place in their church that are unbiblical, and they've allowed marriages to take place in their church that are unbiblical, and it seems like now they're just picking a fight with homosexuals because of their inconsistency. And if we want to make any progress, we have to be honest about that. Just as Jews in Jesus' day looked to various schools of thought and certain rabbis for their interpretation, so many Christians in the coming years will look to their favorite podcast pastors or their favorite book writers or the guys who have their major platforms or what this seminary says about marriage in order to find their guidance. Many of these leaders will do what President Barack Obama did in his famous ABC interview. They will say that they've evolved on their understanding of marriage. You know, it's important to notice that Jesus never evolves in his understanding of marriage. Many pastors have already bowed the knee to the American gods of sexual freedom, comfort, popularity, acceptance, independence. And they are trying to shout the church into submission or they're sending Satan's workers into the church to twist Scripture, to twist the right understanding of love, and to twist the understanding of marriage, and to get us to believe that if we do not accept what the world says marriage is, we are full of hate. But how unloving is it for us to reject what God has said and to receive the world, and to lie to people and to damage society by allowing marriage to be taken over by Satan? So whose voice are you going to listen to about marriage? The cultures, your favorite pastors, or God's? Brothers and sisters, if I ever step into this pulpit and tell you something about marriage that is out of line with what you read here today from Jesus' own mouth and from Genesis, you need to fire me. If any one of these elders comes up into this pulpit trying to twist Scripture to make you believe that Marriage is something other than what God has designed it to be. You need to have that elder removed from his position. You should know that as a member in this church, if you try to bend and even break God's understanding of marriage, and you try to sow seeds of division in the life of this church along those lines, we will lovingly rebuke you and call you to repent of that sin. This is the way that Christians should approach every area of their lives, not just marriage. 
But at this point in time, it's especially important that we remember that God's word is preeminent in how we understand certain things because marriage is the thing in our culture, in our time, that is under attack. You know, If there were some other area that was supremely under attack, we would deal with that. But this is the fight that is at our doorstep. And make no mistake, friends, the fight has been brought to our doorstep. One of the questions that I hear from certain Christians, but oftentimes from people who aren't Christians, is why is the church making such a big deal about this? Why are we picking a fight? Why does it always have to be? Brothers and sisters, we don't want this fight. I would much rather not preach a sermon about marriage that has to go off and talk about gay marriage or polygamy or anything along those lines. But the fact is, is that the world has brought this fight to our doorstep. Literally. Couples are bypassing four or five different churches within their area that would happily marry them in order to find a church that won't marry them so that they can have something to complain about and to have a complaint to register legally. When I say that they're bringing the fight to our doorstep, I don't just mean that it's a, a, an increasing sense of urgency in the culture, although that is true. I mean, literally, people are looking for churches to fight about this with. One of the best quotes from one of our presidents said that, uh, quotes speaking of our presidents, was that uh, he was not a man who ever went looking for a fight, but if someone came to his home looking for one, they would find him on his doorstep. Our goal is not to wage war against the world on marriage. Our goal is to stand firm on God's word. But more importantly, brothers and sisters, you should know that in this church, I'm not looking for us to even wage war within the church. I'm not, I don't expect this church to kind of go out and, and fight for the church at large. The only thing that I'm concerned with is that we as a church remain faithful to God's word. I don't have to give an account for the whole world. The elders of this church are not going to have to give an account for legal decisions rendered in this land. Me and Michael and Grant are not going to have to give an account for what the church down the street does about marriage. But we will have to give an account for each and every one of your souls. Speaking of the shepherd's responsibility for the sheep, 1 Peter says, the sheep have been entrusted to us. That image comes from a shepherd who's been given, let's say, a hundred sheep. And he can't lose it because he's been entrusted those sheep. He can't lose even one of them. So every day he counts the sheep. He waters the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He does whatever. He protects the sheep. It's, it's an investment that's been given to him to watch over. And you are our investment. Not the church down the street. We will close the doors of this church before the government ever tells us what we can and cannot do about marriage. And so we as elders... Whenever we deal with the questions of marriage in this church, we will always point the congregation back to God's word. Now, do you remember the beginning of the sermon? Where we were talking about abrogation? You remember that I said that abrogation is the view that a later teaching comes along and improves and corrects an earlier teaching? Well, some people think that that's what Jesus is doing here. They think that, you know... Moses said one thing, and then Jesus comes along, and he's like, well, actually, no, I'm here to tell you something else, something new and something better. But as you can see, that's not what's happening here. Rather than saying something new, Jesus is pointing to something old. He's not saying, actually, I'm changing what Moses said. 
Rather, he's saying, no, uh, I agree with what Moses said, and I'm going to help you understand why he said it, because of your sin, and I'm going to point you to something older than Moses. I'm not correcting something old with something new. I'm correcting, I'm explaining something old with something older. It's a very big difference. Now, let's take a moment and read verse 9 again. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This verse is extremely important. We talk a lot about rights these days, and that's kind of natural for us as Americans. We as a nation, we are a people born out of rebellion because the founding fathers believed that all of us possess these certain inalienable rights. That is, they thought that we had the right to not be forced to speak. Now, you should remember that the founding fathers understood our rights in the negative. So they did not understand us to have the right to do something in as much as they thought that we didn't have the right to have something done to us. So we talk about the right to free speech, but originally the thought was, you have the right to not be forced to be silent. First Amendment. Think about the Fifth Amendment. You have the right to not be forced to speak in court. The right to silence. We have the right to not have our homes occupied by soldiers in wartime or to have our property possessed. Rights in the negative. But now, or even have religious views forced upon us. You know, we have the right to freedom of religion. What it means in the context of those days was the government doesn't have the right to tell us you have to be Anglican or you have to be Presbyterian. Now, <clears throat> these days we view rights much more in the positive, you know. I have the right to education. I have the right to education even as an adult. I have the right to health care. I have the right to medicine that will allow me to live my life carefree without having to worry about the consequences of my sin. I have the right for this. I have the right for that. This is a very different understanding of rights than your grandparents would have had, and certainly that your, it's very different than the founding fathers would have had. Nevertheless, citizens and lawyers and judges in America are in a battle for rights, even today, when it comes to marriage. In verse 9, Jesus teaches us about our marital rights. Here's the most important thing that he teaches, and he, like the fathers, states it in the negative. He says, you do not have the right to end your marriage. You do not have the right to undo something that God has done. When it comes to rights in marriage, God has the right and you have the responsibility to obey. We think that we have the right to decide to undo what God has done. But it's weird because as Christians, in every other area, we know that we don't really have the right. You know, God has said we shouldn't steal. And so we know I don't have the right to steal. God says we shouldn't unlawfully take someone's life. And we say, okay, I won't take someone's life. But when it comes to marriage, for some reason, we feel like we are autonomous. We feel like we are sovereign over what we have the right to do in marriage and to overrule what God has commanded. It's a strange phenomenon. Now, to be fair, most Christians know, or at least they would say, that they don't actually have the right to usurp God in matters of marriage. So what they do is they just try to find ways to make it seem like God is on their side. 
I've done this before. You've done this before. We search the scriptures looking for something that will make us feel like God is on our side in the argument, using verses as ammunitions in our gunfights. When it comes to unlawful divorce, we do this all too easily. I know a man who is a dear friend of mine who told me that God told him that he was released from his marriage, that he was free, that God loved him so much that he just wanted him to be happy, and he wasn't happy in marriage, so God told him he was free. Well, it's true. God does love us. It's true. God wants us to be happy. But brothers and sisters, sin is never a path to happiness. Disobeying God's law is never the path to happiness. Quite the opposite, in fact. I asked my friend if he had cheated on his wife or if she had cheated on him. No. Had she ever abused him? Had she abandoned him? No, no. So as far as I can tell from reading the scriptures... My friend had no biblical grounds to get divorced, yet he maintained that God told him that he was free to get a divorce. My question for him and my question for you is this. Would God reveal something to you privately, personally, that is in direct contradiction to what God has revealed to us through his word? Absolutely not. So if God tells you that it's okay to do a certain sin in your life and his word clearly says that it's not okay, You should repent of what you think you're hearing from God and look to God's word and believe in that. The marriage covenant is so real, explains Jesus, that if you get an unlawful divorce and then go and marry someone else, you have committed adultery on your first spouse. Look at verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter because the disciples ever slow to understand. Excuse me. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, remember the scenario here. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question about divorce. The disciples, as usual, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. So in these verses we read, Jesus responds to the disciples and says this. You want to know if adultery is the only acceptable grounds of divorce? Well, I'm telling you that if you get a divorce for any other reason than adultery, you're forcing adultery on the person you remarry and on the person that you have divorced. Jesus is stepping into the car and driving it into a tree. He says, if you divorce your spouse for any reason other than adultery, you are actually committing adultery yourself. Well... That should have snapped things right into focus for the disciples. In the scenario from today's text, Jesus is battling a mindset that treats marriage lightly. We live in a similar time, which should remind us that there's no golden age. You know, there's never a time when the the church was perfectly pure, and there was never a time when people treated marriage just as it ought to be treated. You know, in the 1950s, when we thought we understood what marriage was, Men were also beating their wives and people were keeping silent about it. 2,000 years before that, people were treating marriage as casually as they are today, being flippant about divorce, divorcing their wives for any and every reason. So here is my practical application for us as a church about Jesus' teaching on marriage in light of the cultural context where we find ourselves. Now, I thought long and hard about this practical application. 
I spent hours wrestling, digging, trying to think of something pithy, clever, memorable to say. And this is what I came up with. Do not get divorced. Do not get divorced. Divorce is abominable in the sight of God. Divorce only exists because sin exists, and it is an ever-present reminder to God that we are in constant rebellion to Him, even in the most deepest, even in the deepest, most important ways. Divorce is the fruit of selfishness. Divorce is the result of treating covenants lightly. Divorce is the result of laziness. Divorce is the result of a shallow understanding of God's word. For men, divorce often comes when we fail to love our wives as we're supposed to, like Jesus Christ laying down our our lives for the good of our wives, fighting for our marriage until the last dying breath. You know, there's stories from World War I and World War II of men going out into no man's land, you know, being shot nine times, pulling a bayonet out of their back pocket, trying to crawl to the enemy's side that they might take, take at least one more down with them before he goes. That is the way that we as men ought to be fighting for our marriages until our last dying breath, laying our lives down in every way for our wives out of love. For women, marriage is often the result of their inability to patiently endure for the sins of their husband, to show respect to their husband, to do other things along those lines. And because we live in a world where both people in marriage are sinners, it's never just one-sided, it's never lopsided, it's usually a result of a husband not loving his wife as he ought, and a woman not submitting and respecting her husband as she ought. And those sins compound one upon another. Divorce shows that we failed to understand the gospel. The gospel says that we are the bride of Christ and that Jesus Christ purchased us with a great dowry, his own life. And he called us to himself and he made us his bride. He's done nothing but love us and cherish us. And at our best, we have failed to love Jesus as we ought to love him. We've let our eyes be drawn away from our husband and our Lord towards other men in the streets. We've allowed our hearts to be drawn towards other gods. If there's ever anyone in the history of the world who has had a reason for divorce, it's Jesus. And he's had every right to divorce us, the church, as his bride. He would be fully justified in doing so. But he doesn't divorce us. He loves us. He endures with us. And on top of that, he sanctifies us with the washing of the water of the word. He forgives us. He sees us in himself as we are in him, covered by his blood. He doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in his righteousness. You should try to apply that in your marriage. Rather than looking at your wife and seeing them in their sin, try to see them the way that Christ sees them. Righteous in His sight. We are an adulterous people. But Christ is a faithful husband. 
He loves us and He treats us better than we deserve. I know that's the way I, the way I feel about my wife. How many of you can say the same thing, you know? You say, man, my, my wife loves me and treats me better than I deserve. Well, when that's happening, she's showing you what the gospel looks like. Christ loves us and treats us better than we deserve. What we deserve is hell. But he gives us his grace. And Jesus never quits his bride. So whenever divorce and remarriage comes up, the main question is always, well, what about adultery? What about adultery? We've talked about this morning, and yes, Scripture does say that adultery is grounds for divorce. But Scripture also says more than that. It doesn't end the conversation there. The Scripture tells us that Jesus loves us, His all-too-often adulterous bride. And He doesn't use our sin as an excuse to divorce us. Just like Jesus pointed beyond Moses to Genesis... This morning, to help us understand how we as Christians ought to think about divorce, I want to point you beyond Moses and beyond Genesis to the gospel, which I've just explained to you. In the gospel, we're shown what the love of God looks like in marriage. It looks like a husband fighting for his marriage, even when there is covenant unfaithfulness. Even when there is technically grounds for divorce. As Christians, we all too easily fall into the trap of asking the question, what is permissible? What can I get away with? What can I do that won't technically be sin? Will God be mad at me if I do this? But friends, isn't it better for us to think along different lines? Instead of asking, what is permissible or what can I get away with? What technically wouldn't be sin? Wouldn't it be better for us to ask questions like, What would be most honoring to Jesus? What would most powerfully highlight the gospel? What would most exemplify the love of God to a lost and dying world? What would make Christ look more glorious in my marriage? Even in the sin of my marriage. So here are two scenarios that we're going to run through and then we're going to ask ourselves that question again. Scenario one. Pam and Jim have been married for seven years. Six years into the marriage, Pam has an affair on Jim. And in the seventh year, Jim finds out. Jim is broken. He's devastated. But he's a Christian, and he tries to forgive Pam. And he eventually does. But he can't get past it. He can't get past that, the idea that another man has had his wife. And eventually he files for divorce. The elders of the church walk Jim through this process. And all parties handle it well. It's handled along biblical lines. And the divorce goes through. Eventually both Pam and Jim remarry. Now, there's nothing dishonoring to God in this situation. Except for the sin that brought it about. But the way that they handled this divorce was along biblical lines. Now here's a second scenario. Same thing. Pam has an affair around year six and Jim finds out in year seven. Jim is crushed. He's obliterated. He he cannot get past the thought of it. And eventually he decides to divorce his wife. 
the elders are walking Jim through this, and they agree that, biblically speaking, he does have grounds for divorce. It would be permissible. It would not be sin. But they exhort him to consider the gospel. They challenge him to remember that even though he has a right to divorce, he has an opportunity here to lay down his rights like his Savior, Jesus Christ. He has an opportunity to love his wife with a supernatural, gospel-driven love that does not exist in the world anywhere outside of the church of Jesus Christ. He has an opportunity to represent Jesus Christ to his wife, to the church, to the world. And so he stays with her. And he works through the pain and the anger and the embarrassment of the adultery. Those who are close to Pam and Jim know about their affair. And they know about the potential divorce, which means that they also know about the power of the gospel when Jim decides not to follow through on the divorce. And they see the power of the gospel two months in when Jim freaks out and starts considering divorce again, but then decides to stay committed to his wife. And they see the power of the gospel six months later when they are both attending church together and Jim holds his wife's hand for the first time since it happened. And they see the power of the gospel again. Five years later, when Pam and Jim are happily married, serving faithfully in the life of the church, helping other younger couples work out the problems in their marriage. Which of these two scenarios best exemplifies the love of God? Which of these two scenarios best puts the power of the gospel on display? Which of these two scenarios makes the love of God seem sweeter? What do you think this kind of love, this gospel-empowered love that, that Jim gives to Pam here, what do you think that that does for Pam? Well, now Pam understands the gospel in a way that she could never understand it before. She now understands what it feels like to be loved when she's done everything that deserves to be hate. Now she understands her sin and God's grace in a way that she never understood it before. And this isn't hypothetical. If you talk to a brother or sister who has been involved in a marriage where adultery has taken place, but where somehow by God's grace, by falling at the feet of Jesus, they save the marriage, they'll tell you the love and affection that the spouse who sinned feels towards the spouse who forgives is just mind-blowing. It just totally brings the gospel to life for them in a way that they never understood before. One brother told me that it was like a torrent of love and grace that broke the dams of his heart. The adulterer is humbled by the love of their spouse, which increases their love all the more. And now as the, the spouse who cheated feels humbled by the gospel and by love, she begins to love better or he begins to love better and it makes it easier for the other spouse to forgive and to continue to love in reciprocation. And love is known in this marriage in a way that it was not known before. You know, Jesus told a parable about something similar to this. Not in the same context, but something similar. He said there was once a moneylender who lent money to two debtors. One who owed 500, another who owed 50. 
When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of them both. And Jesus asks, who do you think loved him more? The one who owed 500 or the one who owed 50? Brothers and sisters, do not get divorced. Do not do it. Even if you have biblical grounds, do not do it. Fight for love in your marriage. Fight to exemplify the gospel in your marriage. Fight to remember the gospel. Do not get divorced. If you have been divorced, you should know that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. You are not stigmatized in the eyes of God. And you are not stigmatized in the life of this church. If all of our sins prior to Christ were counted against us, the amount of shame would fill up this room all the way to the ceiling that we possess. But the good news of the gospel is that we are forgiven and our sins are cast into the sea of forgetfulness. And if you were divorced before Christ, that divorce is no longer counted against you. If anyone has any questions about divorce and remarriage that this sermon hasn't answered, I'd encourage you to find me or one of the elders after the service or at some point throughout the week so that we can talk more and help you think about it. Brothers and sisters, seek Christ, and by the power of His Holy Spirit, find some way to love the unlovable in your marriage. Remember, on the cross, Jesus did not die to purchase the lovely. He didn't die to purchase the beautiful. He didn't die to purchase the perfect bride. Quite the opposite. Romans says, while we were still enemies of God, He reconciled us. Ephesians says, while we were still dead in our sin, he loved us. He loves us despite our imperfections, despite our sins. He loves us with the strong love of a husband. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would encourage you to run to that love. It's the only love that will satisfy. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be warm in the way that we think about marriage and the life of this church. That we would not be vitriolic towards the world, even as we stand against it. That we would be faithful to your word, not out of mere white-knuckled obedience, but because we love it and understand it to be good and right and true. We pray for the single members of this church who long for marriage, who desire that gift, but who haven't received it yet. We pray that you would comfort them in their singleness, which is a gift. And that in your good timing, if it be your will, that, they, that you bring them a spouse so that they can walk around preaching the gospel with their marriage until you take them home. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.